Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards a hopeful future. The episode you are about to hear is part of our series on the humanities of artificial intelligence. This series was awarded an action grant by Indiana Humanities and received support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you for listening. So let's start by having you introduce yourself. Uh, so I'm I'm Jordan Thayer, Dr. Jordan Thayer, technically, I suppose. Uh, I am a, uh, I'm the AI practice lead for a local software product consultancy called SEP. Mm-hmm. Um, I finished my PhD in 2012. I focused on a topic called combinatoric search, which is the, the kind of algorithms you use to pack a cargo container or solve a Rubik's cube. Um, after that, I spent a few years in defense uh, and then eventually uh, left that for the private sector and joined a, a product, a software product consultancy, as I said. Um, so there I, uh, what my job is, is to help clients understand how their business needs can be met by AI and help them understand sort of what engineering work is required to field those AI techniques. Right, because AI has to be set up to work properly. It doesn't just set itself up. Yeah, yeah. And in general, like, um, you know, we're sort of experiencing a, a pretty big hype cycle right now around a certain technique in AI, uh, generative techniques and large language models and the like. Um, and so you get folks that are really fixated on that, like, how can I use ChatGPT or how can I use these these models? It's like, well, yeah, maybe in these ways, but also here's another 40 years of research, much of which is is more applicable to the kinds of problems you're likely to have in your industry. So who is your favorite fictional AI? Oh, man, that's rough. Um, there are a lot of really good ones. Uh, it's... Probably the puppet master from Ghost in the Shell. Why? So it's um, the so for those of you who haven't haven't seen it, it's a like a nineteen eighties uh, cyberpunk anime, and in it the the main character, the major, and this villain, the puppet master, get into an argument about personhood and self. Um, and I think that's what it is. Is it like it's a it's a system intelligent enough to fight for its own self preservation and to argue competently that that it's an entity that deserves to live. Um, I think I think it's really just the property that's associated with more than anything else because the other the other themes in that uh, in that movie are ones of transhumanism, like how much are we attached to the the shell that we incorporate or in uh, inhabit. Um, how much of like my fundamental self would be lost if I were to be shifted to another uh, another body or another being, that kind of thing. So I think it's just that. So what are some of the other AIs in fiction that we're familiar with? Um, so I think, uh, you know, given the, the context of how we met each other, right, uh, Data from Star Trek is a classic example. Um, R2-D2 and C-3PO, Star Wars is a huge property, right? And those come up as well as the the other robots in the extended universe. Um, Outside of those, there are, um, I can't remember the name of the machine in war games anymore. I I used it in my previous presentation. But yeah, that so that device in war games is another classic example. Uh, the Terminator is a big one. You know, if you go to video games and you're talking about like maybe Shodan, the AI from System Shock, 
none of those robots are necessarily complex characters in a certain sense, right? They're stark black and white. Like the 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 T the T1000 is there to destroy things. Data is, with the exception of like one episode, pretty much universally good and nice. Um, and you don't get anything in between that's that's really like a, a deep complex character uh, most of the time occasionally that's the whole point but so in general what does fiction get right about ai it, it depends on the fictional character in the fictional setting right um so whopper there it is whopper from war games is like dead on right like it's a big defense system it's built for a single purpose and it's completely devoid of humanity um, that's that's really most of what we have today. They're they're computational systems. They're mathematical models meant for solving some sort of problem. The AIs that you tend to see in most fiction are they're examples of what we would call artificial general intelligence. And um, in in the academic setting, there are people arguing whether or not that's even like technically feasible. So we're certainly not there yet as engineers. So like. The, the AIs that you see in fiction tend to be way further down the road than the sorts of things that we're capable of building these days and that are uh, frequently fielded. So what is what do fictional depictions get really, really wrong about AI? Is there one that just you see a lot and it just kind of annoys you because you know the reality? For, for systems that are, are narrow in scope, um, there's something that's like just almost correct. Uh, you see a lot of like a paradox causing uh, an AI system to mal malfunction destructively, right? It um, it loops forever or it, it destroys itself with its own thinking, thinks itself out of existence. Um, those systems would fail much less spectacularly in those situations and there would be fail safes built into them. So like that sort of thing kind of rubs me the wrong uh, the wrong way. But most of the time, the the depictions of AI in film that and in books that are uh, semi-accurate, they're not like, okay, this is just another person, but it's a robot for the purposes of the story. Those are more or less okay. So uh, let's talk about the different types of AI. So you mentioned already chat GPT, and that's mm -hmm. the one that, that has been in the public consciousness a lot this yeah. year. And that's what generative AI, right? So what is that? Very, very briefly, generative techniques are ways of producing something, some sort of uh, data asset, like a, a string of text or a picture or a sequence of data, whatever it is, given uh, a context and a fragment of information. So. You can kind of think of them as, as autocomplete on steroids, um, where with autocomplete, you would have, say, the English language as context and a fragment of a sentence, a few letters maybe, and it would give you a reasonable completion of that that may or may not be what you were thinking of, but would be in the neighborhood of it. Um, tools like ChatGPT take the entire internet as context and larger documents like a Reddit post or or a book fragment, a couple of pages from a textbook, maybe even, and produce a natural completion of that, um, where natural completion is based on, you know, people evaluating these things over and over again. Some people will talk about AI hallucinating. What is that? Sure. That's in generative AI usually, right? Uh, in a couple of places. Uh, in machine learning as well. So hallucinations is like a, a technical term of art, and it means to imagine a fact that isn't in evidence or wasn't there uh, to begin with. So 
I think a, a pretty widely seen example of this at this juncture was there was a lawyer who used ChatGPT to produce legal briefs. And it produced in those brief citations to what looked like reasonable citations to other cases, but that case law didn't exist. So that would be a hallucination, right? Those those documents that it was citing didn't exist because it wasn't building a citation. It was building text that looked like a citation. Yeah, that seems to be kind of the key distinction that's easy to miss. You're trying to it's trying to build something that will fool a human into thinking it is X. Is that well, do I have that piece right? Fool maybe ascribes too much intent, right? Because it wants to get the person to accept the output. That's the goal. And so, you know, in training settings, it's done by taking segmenting text and generating something that's that's pleasing or generating something in the neighborhood of the text that's held out. Um, in in the deploy setting where the person's like, oh yeah, I took that output. Like if you're doing human validation. So it's not tricking them, the person is accepting it. Um, but but generally speaking, yeah, that's the thrust. Um, so you you often see um, you see these tools used for almost uh, text retrieval or document retrieval, which is the the very technical term for what Google does, mm -hmm. and they're not built for that. They're they're not built to do question answering over documents. There are other techniques in AI that are purpose built for that sort of thing. Um, you know, I'm old enough that I remember when Watson went up against Ken Jennings in Jeopardy, and that was a question answering system. Fundamentally, it was a probabilistic database behind the scenes. It's a big, like it's a big, powerful system, but it's purpose built to answer questions about a document store. Uh, I think it read most of Wikipedia in order to power itself, uh, along with some other purpose built things for Jeopardy. But um, you know, that technology has been deployed in a variety of settings, medical, pharmaceutical, uh, construction, and so on. And e each of those cases, what they're trying to do is answer questions over corpuses by finding the relevant document or document fragment and regurgitating it. That's a lot different than what uh, ChatGPT does, which is it's got a huge corpus and it produces text that looks like a reasonable completion. And because the corpus is so large, often it contains factual information, but it's not constructed in such a way to guarantee that. And so that's that's the thing. It will work most of the time, but when it does, it will not fail in an obvious way. Yeah, so that becomes the trick, right? Because people get used to being able to rely on it and don't know when you when it's sure. not giving and something reliable. That sort of uh, decision fatigue or analysis fatigue is common in a variety of settings, right? If you have an alarm that is supposed to alert you to a faulty element on a uh, conveyor belt, then you need to occasionally introduce faulty elements to have the human check it. Otherwise, the person will get uh, become unable to identify the, uh, the, ba the bad things when they come through. Um, when people have a system to help them identify things, if it's too accurate, they become reliant on it to the point where they just defer to the decision of the system rather than second guessing it. Um, I, I'm embarrassed that I cannot remember the name of that phenomenon, but it's a, it's a common issue and it comes up all the time in design settings where you have to either introduce uh, effectively false negatives on the or false negatives on the alarming system so that the human has work to do so that they remain engaged. Uh, or, you know, you need to rotate people out at a rapid pace. Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought about having to keep, basically having to keep the humans sharp by giving them testing you have, once in a while. You have to succeed at a task for it to be sticky. And if you never have the opportunity to succeed because the system automates everything, then 
you get rusty yeah and you get the impression the system's just always going to be right which can be a dangerous sure. impression yeah absolutely what is ai copilot i saw it referenced in your presentation but i couldn't figure so that's that's a, a a generative system i believe that's microsoft's generative system so what it seeks to do is to do programming completion so you give it a fragment of source code or just a general question about programming and then it produces uh it produces programming elements that answer that question effectively so in the in the presentation i talked about uh an online tutorial a gentleman did where he, excuse me, generated an Angry Burns clone skinned for Halloween using uh, purely generative techniques, one of which was uh, AI, an AI copilot or AI copilot, I believe it's called. So he didn't have to understand the code. He could just work with the AI to get the code to work. Well, so that's the thing. So he didn't have to write any of the code. But uh, if you look at the queries that he was issuing to generate the program, they were really nuanced. Uh, in the outset, he's like, I want a game in the style of Angry Birds. It needs to use 2D physics and have these sort of interaction models. You should use the following JavaScript libraries to do presentation and interaction. So already the, the developer is using their expert knowledge to say, okay, here are the, here are the guide rails for the generative technique to operate in. Answer the questions give this, given this framing. And uh, then as, as he went along, the code had errors in it, of course, because these things aren't perfect. But because of the experience the developer had, he said, I think the bug is here. I think the bug is of this form. Here's what I think you need to do in order to correct it. Could you please produce code of that nature? So um, it was very much like the dialogue that would happen between a senior and a junior developer and your, if your pair program, which is if two of you are working on the same problem. Um, it looked a lot like that. So it, like, yeah, he used the system to build the program. However, he probably wouldn't have been able to do that without the expert knowledge. Um, now, I I think it's pretty common in software development. You know, we often say that typing is not the limiting reagent. It's not the thing that makes us go slow. Um, that being said, it is a considerable portion of the work. And if you have something that will generate boilerplate code for you, or even more complicated structures that are mostly correct, that's going to help you go faster. So uh, in this particular example, the developer was many times faster than he could have, than he would have been uh, on his own, but it would have been faster still to generate the base code and then modify it themselves rather than interacting with the system to get there. That being said, um, so I've used some of these things myself for for toy projects and whatnot, and like I I can't generate good art, not art that I'm successful with. So usually, what I do is if I'm you know building something that I want art assets for, I'll go to some website and buy a big asset pack for a couple of bucks so that I have placeholder art to use. But with these generative techniques, if you are not concerned with the the generation of those images and whose IP that is and so on. If it's just for a toy home project, asking it for something very much in the vein that you want can you know be exciting, can be drive interest. And although I'm not an artist myself, I do know what looks correct to my to me. I've seen a lot of art in my time, so I can ask it and steer it a little bit, even though I don't have the the ability to pick up the pen myself. So, what are some of those issues you just referenced that? you know, that might make people concerned about using that art? 
Well, so there's there are the moral and ethical implications, right? Like you're 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 taking work away from other people. You may feel that it is an inherent good to pay artists to generate art and art assets for things. Um, that aside, you may also be concerned with who owns an image that is generated by a product. So most of uh, most of these large language models are trained on the internet as a whole, as well as some external data sets. And um, if you have followed this sort of thing, you will have noted that they have not been rigorously careful about what has gone into those data sets in terms of copyrighted work. Um, I believe it's books three was recently-ish in the news for uh, for the ChatGPT models where ChatGPT was trained on a large corpus of copyrighted printed material. Now they bought those books and they digitized those books for ingestion, but like, are they allowed to? Is that kosher? Um, similarly, you know, if someone scrapes all of the images on the open internet, anything that's that's published without attribution, like technically they could have eyes on that, right? If the robots.txt didn't deny them access, they're allowed to look at it. Um, but is it morally right that they did that? Do the people who have their data in the data set have a legitimate copyright claim? Even if they do, there, many of the producers of these models have offered legal indemnity for people using their tools. I believe Microsoft, Adobe, and maybe one other have stepped up and said, look, if you use our models and you get sued for using the output in these settings, we will uh, effectively fret your legal defense or fret your legal fees. Um, you'd have to look at the terms to see what it is ex exactly. Mm -hmm. But like they're saying, like, look, we've got your back if you want to do this. Um, but like, it's one thing to say it, and it's another thing to live that experience. Right, <laughs> so you would sure. have to decide what your what your level of risk that you're willing to tolerate is. And there are also copyright issues in terms of that output, right? AI generated art doesn't have the same copyright protection as it would if you generate it in another way. Is that do I have that right? So I believe that's the current state of the law. Um, the the instance I'm thinking of is the comic book that was generated using generative techniques and submitted. Mm -hmm. I think that they denied that a uh, a copyright. Similarly, AI generated things are not allowed to hold patents is my understanding currently, um, which is interesting because we've been doing things like designing turbine blades with computer systems for a long, long time now um, using uh, genetic algorithms and the like. So. Obviously, those things are patented. It's unclear to me what is different about uh, the new the new rulings. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. So one of the big questions that's been in the news a little bit this year is whether AI, whether these generative AI systems are sentient. And wasn't there someone from Google who was claiming that the one he worked with was sentient? And so what is that? You know, when they ask that question, what are they talking about and what do you think about that question? So um, it, it was one of the engineers that worked on uh, Google's AI, right? Um, so I think the first thing is, I don't know that we have a rigorous definition of sentience. Um, so like it, it's it's hard to have that discussion without good definitions, right? It's, uh, in a rigorous way. Um, that aside, there are... Um, so the things that we we have built, they they respond to us in ways that are 
human-like, right? They, they use text because we've trained them on text. They use images because we've trained them on images and so on. Um, you ever seen a face in a tile floor or, or in a, a textured ceiling, right? Sure, sure. There's, a, there's a word for that phenomenon, but we're wired to be credulous in that very particular way. We see a face, we see words, we want to ascribe intelligence to it because all other all other instances of that in our you know long lived experiences have been generated by people um so it, this is a, sort of an old thing uh one of the oldest systems i can think of is eliza it was a mock rogerian psychologist built back in the 60s and when that was released people were very very defensive of the conversations they were having with this this therapist they thought because it it responded to them and it listened to them and you know it was over effectively irc at the time so it didn't have a rich interaction mechanism and they were willing to ascribe a lot of um its faults to the you know the medium um you know that's so that's sort of what i think about it it's not intelligent in my estimation of such things it's not set up to be and um it's natural for us to think it is um, there are some more interesting, uh, thought experiments in this space that I think are illuminating. So the, probably the most famous one is Searle's Chinese room. There is a man inside of a room with a book and you hand in a, a mess, a message in uh, Mandarin into the room and a cogent response comes out. And so the message goes into the guy, he picks up the message, looks up the relevant response in a book and hands it back out. And uh, the the purpose of the thought experiment is to think about, well, what portion of that, if anything, understands Chinese? Does the room itself with the man and the book understand it? Does the man understand it? Does the book contain the totality of the understanding? Um, because that's that's what these systems do in a certain sense, is they take an input and they give a cogent response back out. And I would argue that in the case of Charles Chinese Room, no part of that system understands Chinese in a meaningful way. Um, and similarly, no part of the, the generative techniques that we have today have a, a meaningful concept of consciousness. But that's, I, again, like, that's just sort of, you know, making an argument from uh, from feelings and thoughts rather than, well, here's a rigorous definition of what it means to be sentient. Yeah, that that does seem like a limiting factor in this whole, are the computers sentient yet? <laughs> what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. So um, we talked, we've talked about the generative AI, and that's the, the one that's been in the news and the one everyone's thinking about, but there's a lot of other kinds of AI. So mm -hmm. let's talk about some of those. Let's go to machine learning next. What is that? What does it do? Where does it show up? Uh, so machine learning is the notion that we, we have a pile of data that's labeled in some way. And we'd like to be able to recover labels for new data. So um, imagine you have 100,000 images that are labeled as containing a bird or not containing a bird. You could build a system that was capable of identifying birds. Um, and that that may sound ridiculous, but if you're in the natural national park system, you might very much care about the ability to count birds from trail cameras rather than having to send someone out and spot check and do sampling. Um, so you see machine learning all over the place. Um, you know, if you searched anything on YouTube or Netflix today, uh, the ranking algorithm that produced the series of uh, videos that you saw 
that was powered by machine learning on some level, because in that case, the data is sort of the features of the video, what the genre is, what the length is, whether, you know, who the producer is and who they're connected to. And then the labels are whether or not you clicked through and watched it last time or whether or not whoever searched for these things clicked through and watched it last time. So doing that, they can build ranking algorithms that are very effective in surfacing the things you're likely to click through. Uh, similarly, Amazon and every other web store front these days uses such techniques to uh, surface products you're likely to buy. Um, beyond that, if you use voice to text on your phone, there's machine learning in there, uh, matching the utterances that you use to the letters that represent those phonemes. Um, red eye, well, red eye removal on cameras, not, um, but face detection, face detection is, uh, it's a very specific kind of machine learning. It's a machine, a computer vision system, but it's still mostly powered by machine learning under the hood. It's just in a specialized application. So these things do all sort of play together and things aren't mm -hmm. one and not the other usually, or they don't have to be. Most products it contain two or three different things. Um, Machine vision and computer vision are, all right, sorry, machine learning and computer vision are tightly knitted in so much as there are algorithms in computer vision that are not machine learning. They're purely computational. Uh, edge detection comes to mind. So detecting corners in a picture. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's not learning-based. Red eye removal is, is not learning-based, but things like figuring out what a face is after you've done sort of feature detection in an image or reduce it to a, a set of features. That is, that is machine learning. Pose estimation, figuring out how a person is, is postured from a 2D image. There are parts of that that are purely purely algorithmic. Like there's just a set of rules we apply. And there are parts of that that are learned from data. And so they blend a little bit. So the boundaries aren't always as clear as you might like them to be. Um, I mean, technically those generative techniques we were just talking about, those are powered by machine learning too, because they're large labeled data sets that we're grinding on to produce some function that minimizes some error. Um, like that's, that's how it works, but you wouldn't talk about it in the same breath, even though it's kind of a subset because that, that would be muddying the waters. Like the, that distinction really matters right now, you know? That makes sense. So where's that line? What's the, some things are just algorithmic and some things are based on, on the learning data. What's the difference? So I, you know, I, I would be hard pressed to tell you what a bird is uh, algorithmically given like a, a, an RGB image of a, or a, a color image of a bird. Right. Um, but if I have enough, data, if I have enough number of pictures, I can ask a computer to recover something that's very close to the nascent idea of birdness as a computation on those pickle, pixels. And it's not going to look like anything I recognize. It's going to look like a set of weighted sums on, uh, on pixel intensity, roughly. And it's not going to be anything that a human would sit down and write. Whereas um, with, uh, with corner detection, it's very, very simple. What's the gradient between these two pixels and what's the, there's a, a flow algorithm that you use to compute. Uh, it doesn't particularly matter. There's an algorithm <laughs> that you use to compute a set of uh, values in a graph and then you cut the minimum values. And like, okay, here are the edges. 
Um, so there's a very direct set of rules that can be computed and is known. Whereas with uh, birdness, well, we can't really describe what a bird is, right? It has some features, but there's some wiggle room at the edges. You end up in the very much like behold man with the plucked chicken space. Um, so I don't feel like that was a, an adequate answer to your question. Um, <laughs> in general, if it's cheaper to have a programmer write down the rule set, you would use software or an algorithm. And if that rule set defies explanation initially, you would use machine learning. Um, outside of the bird example, I'm trying to think of, of some others that are really good, right? Like the ranking algorithm is probably a good one. I would be hard pressed to compute a value that was good for a large set of users. And it would be, uh, from an engineering perspective, infeasible for us to build a unique ranking algorithm for every individual that interacted with YouTube. But if you do that with data, it becomes trivial. Well, not trivial, but it becomes, you know, a thing you can do. Doable, right. And if I understand correctly, some of the things that are very easy for a human to do, it's been harder than we thought to train a computer. Like, tell me the difference between a cat and a dog. That's been harder to train computers than, than it seems like it should be. So there are certainly things like that, yeah. Um, I'm I'm trying to come up with with some other good examples. So the English language is rife with those. Um, we learn over the course of being alive and and using the language to do things like word sense disambiguation. When I say time flies, what do I mean by that? What does the word flies mean in there? Um, if you say I'm I'm coding, well, that's very different in a hospital than it is in an engineering software engineering <laughs> practice, right? Um, but our ability to differentiate those versions, the, the meanings of those words where words have multiple meaning, uh, our ability to read sarcasm and, and other cues like that. Like you can teach it, but it's computationally very, very challenging. Um, and then there are certain things that are difficult for humans to do from a, a computational standpoint that are that are relatively trivial for uh computers right like i i can't do prime factorization of complex numbers but computers are quite good at it so when the uh, captcha wants wants us to click on all the things that have a bus in them is uh -huh. that is that part of the data set for machine learning or are they testing us where, where does that play into this so it's it can be both, right? So in a certain you've noticed that you don't write the weird scrambled word captures anymore, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's that's sort of gone away. Um, so in some cases you are labeling a training set mm -hmm. um, as you know you're doing labor in order to get access to the site or the file or whatever. Uh, and in some cases it really is a challenge, right? Like I know what the answers are, and if you answer wrong, I'm going to assume there's some automated system behind the same the scenes here. Now, in practice, um, really, the uh, robot detection stuff is mostly using cadence and keystroke metrics. Um, humans are slow relative to what you want an automated system to be and do. And they drag their mouse around naturally. It doesn't just teleport and stuff like that. Um, so there are all sorts of humanness signatures in the way we interact with the machine that are, they're not difficult to replicate, but they're expensive from an automation perspective because they take wall clock time. Um, 
So most of the time you're labeling a training set for someone and every so every so often you're being challenged, but that's rare. I ran into a set the other day where it had me do maybe 10 and it was one of those click every square with a bus in it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, is that corner of the mirror supposed to be clicked or not, or the bicycle? And I, as they kept having me do more and more, I'm like, okay, so that's not, that square doesn't have a bicycle. It has part of the basket. Am I supposed to click it or not? <laughs> I think right. I've run into that before. Yeah, um, there are lots of things that can cause it to question you further and repeatedly. Um, but yeah, most of the time you're helping build a training set. There are other, I mean, there are other systems that expressly exist at these days to help build and annotate data. Um, but often you see, uh, things like that sort of either turned into a web captcha or gamified in some way where there's, you know, there's some simple arithmetic game that you're playing and what you're really doing is building equations for training behind the scenes, or you're doing word associations and you're building training for another data uh, system. Like, doesn't the computer know what, what a bicycle looks like by now? <laughs> there are a lot of different bicycles out there. That's, that's okay. That's fair. That's fair. Um, so we talked a little about computer vision, but are there more things to say about that and how that plays with the other kinds of AI? Uh, I think the other thing that's interesting to note in vision is that it's um, computers are not people. And whereas we are limited by sort of visible spectrum light, computers are not, uh, and machines are not. So they can use LIDAR systems to get like a depth map of the world in front of them and understand things spatially in a way that we can't as well, um, right? Like I can't measure the distance from me to my screen at the millimeter or sub-millimeter resolution. I'm not going to get that. But, but the computers can, and that enables different types of image processing behind the scenes that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. Um, infrared is another option for computers that, that people don't have, being able to see heat as opposed to visible spectrum light and so on. Um, I can't just staple extra eyes to my head in a meaningful way if I want to have a more robust vision system. Uh, whereas with a computer, I can just buy more cameras and and plug those in and process. So there, there are some things that make it slightly different, but um, by and large, computer vision is to understand a visual scene in a uh, programmatic way. This makes me think of something I read about computers being able to take a still picture and generate the sound that was in like in that in room. Mode, sound keeps mm -hmm. playing. Is that is that part of the computer? Hold on a second. Computer sure. hush. Um, so being able to like imagine what the sounds are from a scene, that's I would be interested in how they engineered that system. I can imagine some ways in which it can be built, but most of them involve taking still frames of videos mm -hmm. and looking at the associated audio with it, right? Um Maybe the, so, it was still, uh, maybe it was uh, video silent movies that they were able to regenerate. I'll have, have to go find the thing. It just Yeah, but in general, yeah, so that's that's associating time series data with other time series data. And yeah, that's that's a classic sort of machine learning problem. If I see this sequence of events, what was the corresponding sequence of events somewhere else? Um, that's literally how speech detects works, is the computer gets utterances from you, right? Phonemes, which are not letters. And then it has to decide which letters were 
uttered in sequence or which words were uttered in sequence that represent that those phonemes were meant to represent. So it's producing one sequence from another. Um, now, like audio channels are a lot richer than, you know, however many phonemes there are in the English language, right? Um, so it's a, it's a higher processing lift and you need a larger data set to make it believable. Um, but it wouldn't be shocking that that sort of thing is possible. The stuff that really uh, gets me is you get a, a picture and they get a partial 3D reconstruction of the scene from a 2D image using splats. Um, that stuff is wild to me because like, I know the data is, is in some ways there in the image, but it's also really not. Um, because like, I don't know what the back of that sh person's shirt looks like theoretically from the picture. I know enough about shirts that I know it probably looks a lot like the front, but it's obviously the, the, the image data is not present in the picture and the ability to regenerate that sort of stuff is wild to me. So you said, use the term splat. I don't know that term. Um, I do not know what that acronym expands to, oh, okay. but it is, it, it is a technique for generating 3d scenes from 2d images. Okay, cool. Um, so what about natural language processing, getting away from the images a little more into the words? Uh, natural language processing is, I mean, it's, it's what it says on the tin, right? It's a way of programmatically understanding the spoken word. These days, that's largely done with big statistical models, which is what LLMs really are. Um, but previously, or the old way of doing natural language processing was to have a bunch of folks sit down and write semantic models of human language and then map those two things together. So doing classic things like sentence diagramming, which you might remember from grade school uh, oh, and associate, <laughs> right? But it's like, okay, well, that's a noun. And then this is the noun phrase. And this is how these two words hang together. And because this is a modifier on the noun, I know to take the meaning of the adjective and associate with the noun and the noun phrase, like all of that, but, you know, with the machine and very quickly. Um, so that, that's what natural language processing is in a nutshell, is the, uh, the desire to produce some sort of richer computational model from text, which is difficult to machine uh, as far as such things go. Um, the modern approach doesn't really use sentence diagramming or anything like that. It uses, um, it does a big statistical look up or it looks at the document as effectively a large vector of words and like word counts. This word appeared this frequently and maybe it appeared in these places if you care about that kind of thing. And then it tries to map the distance from that document to other documents or count the frequency of words that are considered positive or, or things like that. Um, whereas the old style would have been someone writing down the meaning of a few 10,000 relevant words or important thoughts in the area that you cared about and trying to process those um, a little more laboriously. Uh, so famously, when the AI lab started up at MIT, Marvin Minsky thought that they would solve AI over the course of a summer with a couple of grad students. And uh, over the course of his life, he was really never dispossessed of the notion that with enough engineering effort, you could do enough knowledge engineering, which is part of what that semantic analysis of language would require to build general intelligence. You just needed uh, enough engineers and to hit the problem with a large enough hammer. Um, and there, are, there is real promise in doing that approach that way. So, um, you know, with the statistical approach, I can understand things like whether or not this tweet 
is positive and whether or not it's about say the Nabisco corporation, that's easy to do with statistical models. What's harder to do is understand whether or not these two oncology papers are related and how. So if I want to do that, I might lift, I might reach for the more rich semantic modeling to answer those kinds of questions. I'm, I'm finding myself really glad that it didn't continue, that we went into the semantic modeling because otherwise CAPTCHAs might be asking us to diagram sentences and nobody wants that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so another thing I saw in your presentation is the comment about AI being good at optimization, maybe even that sure. as sort of a type of AI. So talk yeah, about so, that. So I mentioned my, my thesis area was combinatoric optimization. So um, if you've ever solved a sliding tile puzzle or a Rubik's cube, those are those are permutation puzzles. They're called so they're they're solved by you can represent them as a line, as a sequence of digits or something like that, and you're permuting elements of that sequence until you get the desired like little picture on the square or all of the cubies come out the same color on each face. Um, solving those things uses optimization techniques, specifically combinatorial optimization, most often. Um, now those are toys. But those problems also appear also in all sorts of industrial places. Um, so almost every assembly line, you care about where the plants in these in the factory are placed so that you minimize routing time between the various plants. That's an optimization problem. Uh, if you're shipping things outside of the factory, like say you have a UPS truck full of packages and you need to deliver them to various houses, that's an optimization problem. It's the traveling salesman problem, in fact. Um, if you are trying to figure out the difference between two genomes, that's an optimization problem too, because you wanna find the edit distance between two genomes. Um, so there are a lot of things that allow themselves to be cast as some sort of minimization or maximization of some mathematical model. Um, and AI has been doing that sort of work since uh, probably the 60s, the 50s, um, and very successfully because there, there are, things that you can describe mathematically and you let the computer go at it and you just think about this problem until any human would be exhausted and then go further. And they're quite good at that. And as you know, since you're fundamentally just asking them to do computation, that's what they're for. Um, the trick is capturing the problem you care about as a mathematical model. That tends to be the challenging part. Talk a little about how those questions are harder to write than people give them credit for and where the tricks are. So let's see, what's a, a good one to start with? Um, I think a lot of people are familiar with Sudoku puzzles, right? Um, Sudoku puzzles are a particular form of numeric puzzle. You wanna get the numbers one through nine on each row, column, and three by three square. They're a, a sort of specialized version of a Latin square. Um, but they're also, from a, a AI perspective, they're a classic example of what's called a constraint satisfaction problem. And the constraints are, well, I need one to be in the row, in the column, and in the three by three somewhere, but I need it to not be in the row, column, or three by three square twice. And similarly, all of the numbers one through nine need to appear in each of those with no repeats and so on. Um, how difficult would it be for you to sit down and enumerate all of those rules in such a way that it emitted only legal solutions to Sudoku puzzles and no illegal solutions? That's, that can be quite challenging. Even if you understand how it can be done, often uh, 
encoding a problem blows it up. So it's really simple to state the rules of Sudoku, but to formalize those mathematically and say Boolean algebra can take several pages, um, often to the point where you're using a program to write another program for you. Um, and that's a simple problem as far as such things go. Um, you know, similarly, if I were doing um, if I were doing the traveling salesman problem, there are a number of ways I might think about writing down the traveling salesman problem. I might start with a list of cities I haven't visited and take one out one after another until I had visited everything in the list. It's a pretty natural assumption of a way to do things, but it turns out it's way, way radically inefficient. What you should do is a priori pick a city to be in the second half of the tour because some city has to be in the second half of the tour and it doesn't matter which city you pick because you can always flip the tour around and now it's in the first half so they're equivalent and doing that breaks the symmetry which reduces the state space enormously so um it's not often hard to write down the problem in a mathematically solvable way it's hard to write down the problem in an efficiently mathematical solvable way because you have to know all of these tricks about breaking permutations and things of that nature even if you're really good at that part of it many domains are not simple, right? Um, one of the examples that I've worked on in the last year is highway maintenance of all things. I'm not a civil engineer. I don't understand really how highways work. I like a lot more now than I did when I started, but I, I, I don't know how a road is built and maintained at a deep, like deep intrinsic level, right? And so when I'm building these sorts of systems, a lot of my time is spent proposing a solution to uh, an expert in the domain and then having them tell me why my baby is ugly. And it's like, well, you made these mistakes and those are obviously things that you shouldn't do. And it's like, I had no clue. Thank you for telling me. Now I'll encode those rules as well. And we'll go back and do this a few more times. Um, so those are that's, that's those are really the tricks is there's a bunch of math tricks that you need to know to write them down efficiently. And if you are the kind of person that knows the math tricks, chances are you haven't spent the time studying the domain. And so you'll need to find that from somebody else. And that can be challenging. People often don't know what it is they know that's special um, until you present them with an example that doesn't incorporate that specialized knowledge. And then it's very illuminating <laughs> how big their eyes get. Oh, yeah. They can tell you where you're wrong, but they couldn't have articulated that. Yeah, absolutely. Experts are notoriously bad at the simple pieces mm -hmm. and that reflective confidence, being able to teach it to somebody is, is a tricky piece. So I imagine that's often an iterative, you yeah. just have to plan on it's going to be, it's going to take three or four rounds to get. Absolutely. Which is convenient because the way we tend to build software these days is iterative, get some, some semblance of it together early and then run it and see where the problems are so that you know what portions you need to fix. AI is no different in that respect. So what is the biggest hope you see coming in the field of AI? What, what part of AI do you think is going to be most exciting and hopeful over the next decade? I mean, I know it, it it's pretty uh, mundane in a certain sense, but I've got um, big hope for self-driving cars, especially in the United States. Uh, we are not a public transit nation, and my folks, and I'm sure others folks, are rapidly getting to the age where they cannot safely drive themselves. And like, they live in the middle of nowhere. They can't get groceries on their own if they can't operate a vehicle. I don't want them to have to give up the house they've lived in for the last, you know, several decades. That's, that's lame. Um, 
So I'm really hopeful that uh, AI is going to be helpful in geriatric care, especially around self-driving cars. There's some really exciting things going on in care for cognitive decline as well and early detection of that stuff. Um, so that's that's really promising. Um, like I think that's for me that's that's the big one. But there are other um, other applications to get excited about. There are lots of folks doing AI for ecology, trying to figure out how we can minimize carbon emissions. Or uh, there's AI for pharmaceuticals, trying to figure out new molecules for us to study for a variety of medical applications. There are lots of things to be hopeful for, but the big one for me is the the elder care stuff. So what do you think is the biggest worrying side of AI coming down the pike? It's hard to pick one. Um, there, there, are some, there are some serious concerns. Um, you know, from a, a climate perspective, when I think about the amount of energy that's consumed by building a large model like uh, like ChatGPT or any of these large language models, like that's that's a serious amount of carbon emission. And that sort of research is really popular now. And so there's more uh, more and more of those types of emissions going on. So that's that's somewhat concerning. Um, but I think maybe even more worrying are blind applications of AI systems in certain settings. So you see, um, it's hard not to read about things like AI being used in sentencing decisions or AI being facial detection software being used as part of a criminal case, those systems are not foolproof, right? And they are not 100%. Um, and even if it's something as like, you know, even something as simple, right? And I, I use air quotes that you can't see, but even something as simple as a hiring system that has an automated process and it sorts people into, you know, phone interviews versus the immediate reject pile, right? That's a serious impact on a person's life potentially. And if the system isn't calibrated right, or heaven forbid the system isn't self-biased, right? That's going to have real potential harms. And it's not like the systems weren't unbiased before, but there's just a fixed amount that a human can do in a day and machines are not limited by like the need to sleep, for example. Um, so that's really concerning. Yeah, the assumption that computers make neutral decisions is not true because those are trained on human decisions and humans have not historically been neutral on these things. Yeah, I, I often use the old uh, anti-marijuana PSA. I learned it from watching you in my slide decks when I talk about bias and algorithms, because it, in general, yeah, those data sets are inherently biased by, unfortunately, the nature of the world we live in. I remember hearing a presentation years ago at PenguinCon talking about the training of um, of the large language models that it was at that time based on uh, uh public domain information mm -hmm. which was you know like from the 20s right and so that can be an interesting mess um very recently during the the sort of the height of the COVID pandemic right everyone was using a, a pulse oximeter and most of us were using our cell phones to build those but uh or to you as a pulse oximeter but it turns out most of those models uh initially at the very least were uh highly inaccurate for folks that were not caucasian because well it turns out that when you're in a lab developing a model you're going to try it on yourself if that's an option because it's real low friction 
And, you know, if you're in a computer science department in America, well, that's going to bias things. Yeah, that that's where you get into the the issues with paper towel dispensers, right? That they right. That, that early technology didn't work on darker skin, mm -hmm. uh, and it just didn't get caught. So that's yeah, that's definitely a concern. So what are you working on next? Um, right now, I'm doing some uncertainty prediction for the power grid. So you know, there's obviously you predicting the weather is hard, but the weather has a huge amount of impact in how much power is both produced and consumed in the U.S. Um, when it's cold out, people run their heat. When it's windy out, the wind generators go. When it's raining out, the solar doesn't work so well, so on and so forth. Um, so it turns out that the way the U.S. power grid works is a bunch of people watching a bunch of dashboards and poking at stuff to make sure it doesn't fall over. And um, I, I'm part of an effort to uh, build better reporting systems and uh, better better predictive models for those folks so that they can uh, operate the grids more reliably. Not that grid operation is particularly the flaky part, right? It's, it isn't that the whole grid went down, it's that someone hit a phone pole a few blocks down and a line was severed, generally speaking. Right, right. Yeah, oh, how cool. Um, so if people want to learn more from you or work with you, where can they find you online? Uh, so I am Dr. Bass on Twitter, and they could also go to scp.com and look for uh, the AI articles in our blog. Uh, those would both be things that they could do. Excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I, I, I'm, Absolutely. I'm enchanted by this conversation. I think it's a, such an interesting topic. And uh, so I really appreciate you sharing your expertise. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. And thank you again to Indiana Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities for supporting our series on the humanities of artificial intelligence. Find all of the related episodes as well as transcripts and discussion guides on our website at starbaseindie.org slash podcasts. To find out more about what we're doing now, including our live event coming up in November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or follow us on social media at Starbase Indie. See you on the Starbase.